if you literally count the hours of the day of like a typical queer life, every moment isn't about tragedy and triumph. There's a lot of stuff in between. Greetings and welcome to The Feminist Present, a podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. What's going on? Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Um, well, we, <laughs> we read a good book. And we've lost our minds. That's what's going on. We read a good book. Just one thing that that is going on. It's not the main thing so that's going good. on, but it's a thing that yes. went on. And that was a, a real ray of, ray of light. Oh, so good. Okay. So like we have a triumphant return of a dear and cherished friend of the pod today. Dr. Anthony C. Ocampo is here talking about his like amazing second book, Brown and Gay in LA. I am neither brown nor live in LA. And I felt like this book just provided an essential service to my life. And I was so happy it existed. It's a great book. And I think a little bit of a trigger warning. We get into it mm. right away. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, you, you do these interviews and sometimes you can sort of stick with the generalities and kind of feel your way forward to the, the specifics. We were nerding out. We we both, I think, had had mainlined the book in a way that was not entirely advisable before the interview. Couldn't put it down. So, which yeah. is a, it's a testament to how good it is, but it's also totally yeah. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna have to puzzle out what this book's actually about. It's a beautiful qualitative sociology of gay sons of immigrants in L.A. and how these three facts: how being a person of color, being in L.A and being queer kind of interact in the biographies and in the families of these young people. It's, it's as you say, a terrific book, absolutely amazing book, mm -hmm. and we both really, really liked it. I'm charting, as I'm thinking about this, like my relationship with Anthony and the podcast relationship with Anthony. I met Anthony, like I've still never met Anthony face-to-face -face in person, which is weird because we, we like talk as friends, but... I read his book, The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americas Break the Rules of Race. And I was so like blown away by this book that I had to write him like a fan email. And out of that grew a conversation and a friendship and his first appearance on our podcast, which I totally recommend you listen to. If you haven't listened to it yet, we talk about his book, The Latinos of Asia. We talk about Anthony's experience at Stanford. He's a Stanford alum. And we talk about, I believe this was a 2020 interview. If Does that, does that match your memory, Adrian, that we interviewed? That's right. One, yeah. one of our very first, yeah. Yes. Anthony in 2020 was talking about some of his sort of aspirations towards what I would call creative nonfiction. And in the intervening two years, he has very much realized many of those aspirations. Yeah. And I think some of those are realized in Brown and Gay in LA itself. One of the things that I always love and I'm eager to champion about Anthony's work is that it is academic work. Like it is a Scott, both of his books are scholarly books published by scholarly presses and they are page turning, unput downable and like accessible to anyone. I will say on the record and like maybe I should fear for my job more than this. I don't read a ton of scholarly texts. Like I'm not like a huge theory head the way some academics are. And I just really appreciate how approachable and digestible Anthony's are, never at the expense of like intelligence or rigor or complexity, but he's a real writer. And I really appreciate his attention to the sentence and attention to craft, as well as his like rigor with data and research. Yeah. And you got into that with him a little bit as well, but what, what it means for, especially with a second book where, mm -hmm. you know, you've showed your academic bona fides and you now want to figure out what's possible as a writer mm -hmm. without really sacrificing any of the of the critical mm -hmm. dimensions of the work. And I think towards the end of the conversation, we asked him about that and what his experience was with this follow-up to the Latinos of Asia. Can I pause on an important point? Is it bona fides? Is that what you... I have heard... I, I literally don't know. I have heard so many pronunciations and I trust you to know. No, it's... I mean, the Latin is bona fide. Right. But I think that's, yeah. But people also say bona fides. I mean, it's totally fine. I think. Bona fides. Yeah. So, so bona fide is also included in the lexicon of how we can say this? Maybe not. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a native speaker. This is an English word, not a, right? I mean, like, I know, I know how to say it in Latin. Well, it's a Latin word. Of course, but it bona fides <laughs> it's is not a Latin word. Anglicized. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, well, we'll puzzle on that for another day. I just, I don't think I'm ever going to get to the bottom of how that's actually pronounced. I mean, this applies to Los Angeles too. 
Los Files, you know? Like, why do we call it Los Files? So <laughs> but if you call it anything else, you'll immediately designate yourself as someone who knows nothing about LA. I know. We digress. We digress. Um, what's a famous bridge in LA? Are there famous bridges in LA? All the rivers are drying up. I don't know. Well, there's, that, there's an LA river. There's that raised freeway. What is that called? <laughs> What's that freeway in well, LA called? <laughs> this is a very old reference, but you know, maybe we should take the 405 to the 101 down to the 101 <laughs> I was all totally the way down to San Clemente. Um, yeah. I'm going to take yeah. the 405 to the 101. Okay. So now we are going to take the 405 to the 101 to our interview with Anthony C. Ocampo about his book, Brown and Gay in LA. Californians. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> OMG. I'm like suppressing so many F-bombs right now just so like people don't turn off this podcast because they're like ashamed at my vulgarity. But like this book is so fucking good. Oh my God. It's really (laughs) great. Oh my fucking God. Anthony Ocampo, Dr. Anthony Ocampo, (laughs) will you tell us in your words what Brown and Gay in LA is about and who it's for and like give us give us the on-ramp to this like LA freeway? Uh, I love the freeway analogy. Um, I, gosh, Laura, thank you for having me back on the feminist present. I'm very honored. <laughs> and Adrian, friend of the pod, <laughs> Anthony Ocampo is back. Long time friend of the pod. It's always weird to hear folks' reactions, positive reactions, because I spent. I mean, I spent so many hours thinking the book was terrible, or <laughs> months before production being like. Oh man, I don't know. I got it. It's gonna hit, or, or I got it right. I, I was, I don't know. I was like extra Virgo, extra hard on myself. But I'm glad you think so. So, <laughs> I, I really, really mean it. I mean, given everything I've learned from the book, that fact of being very hard on yourself, having exceptionally high standards for yourself, it sounds like you came by that pretty honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's why I'm like obsessed with figure skating and gymnastics. It's a bunch of people who have to look absolutely perfect oh, yeah. but look completely effortless but under the surface is just a whole lot of like trauma <laughs> totally oh my god the way all overachievement is inspired by trauma is like for sure on my list of things to talk about but I want to start in a like a craft nerd way. Like, yeah, I am obsessed with the structure and the methodology of this book. This is a methodological course that you have like established as kind of your signature at this point. Like this is a structure we've seen in both of your books. So can you talk a little bit about this methodology and your approach to like field interviews and how you collect the data on which you process these findings? Yeah. And I'm going to answer your first question, which is what's the book about? So great. Oh, we'll get there. Yeah, the book is Brown and Gay in L.A. It chronicles the coming of age experiences of second generation gay men, queer sons of immigrants of Filipino and Latinx descent who live in L.A. And, you know, tracks how the intersection of race and sexuality and gender affects their lives across different chapters of their lives, as well as different arenas of their lives from family to school to neighborhoods Mm -hmm. to the to the gay scene. So that's what it's about. But to your second question about methodology, oh, my gosh, it feels so like this question always stumps me because Mm -hmm. I think back to my interviews and I think about how a lot of them really just felt like I was kikiing with like a best friend, even though I didn't actually know these folks. And I think for folks that don't know the basics, I did in-depth interviews with over 60 queer sons of immigrants that live in L.A. or grew up in L.A. And, you know, the methodology was interviews. So I was basically at the patio of a Barnes & Noble or a Starbucks or some coffee shop or some outdoor mall, literally like just talking to them about their lives. And for for most of the conversations, they lasted, I would say, upwards of like the formal interview was like an hour and a half or so. But to be honest, like I wasn't going to just like 
meet someone that I didn't really know and be like, tell me your life story. So there was a big chunk of time that was just us like eating Chipotle <laughs> or drinking coffee before I pressed the record button. But I was actually quite surprised at how how much our shared identities or social locations. I'm Filipino. I'm a queer son of immigrants. I was actually quite surprised at how much that functioned as an icebreaker without having to spell it out. Mm. There was this kind of instant kinship that I felt with everyone that I spoke with. And with some folks, it sounds like you interviewed them for the Latinos of Asia already. And so you had a pre-established kind of connection with them. I thought that was very... Very sweet, the way that, you know, in some way, they're kind of helping you do your sociology, you know, again and again. And you're always like, oh, wow, I wonder what they said in the last one. I couldn't match them up with anyone uh, from the last one. But I, I like that. I like the fact that in some way it feels, you know, like you're exploring a cosmos. You're not just kind of parachuting into an environment and sort of talking to people. You can tell that these the questions you put to your interview subjects sort of arrive from like a really good sense of place and a good sense of social life around these various institutions that you talk about. Yeah, I think there was maybe two Filipino Americans that I interviewed for my first book, The Latinos of Asia, that something about their story ended up in, in this book. And it is kind of like an Easter egg. You know, when you watch a movie, there's that movie Do Revenge yeah. that's on Netflix. And it has a lot of homages to like Mean Girls or other, you know, Heathers and other classics. Um, but I didn't even think about it that way. But yes, there there are two folks who I interviewed from the last book who actually in some ways were the catalyst for me wanting to write a whole book on queer children of immigrants. Because mm. as I was doing the research for the first book, and I really noticed how the queer respondents that I had really the way they told their stories, queerness was very much the frame with which they mm. told their family stories or their school experience stories or their dating experiences. And I think the person you're referring to that I write about in this book that was a UCLA student that dressed as a woman on the weekends, there was this line that he said that really hit home, which was, you know, now that I'm openly gay, I think about how the gay part of my identity affects me more than my Filipino side. And oh. I was like, oh, shit, I got to write. I feel like I can't just like do like a quickie one or two lines about queerness in the first book. And so I, I just decided that there has to be a whole nother book that tackles that issue. I have to be a nerd and take it to the text because what you just said is so interesting to me. I, what you were just referring to, Anthony, seems really connected to this up-down identities concept that you introduce in the book. So I thought I would just read a little bit there. I'm on, I'm on page 82 for the class. <laughs> Within the Filipino-American community, Aldo, Joey, and other gay members felt compelled to maintain what sociologist Marcus Hunter has described as up-down identities, a conceptualization of best captured by connecting the two identities with the word then. Because Barcada wasn't a space where intersectional identities were understood, they saw themselves as Filipino then gay, privileging their ethnic identity over their sexuality. But what that's me reading from the book, but what you're just describing is like a sort of process of, of like flipping that hierarchy almost. And that seems to be a theme that kind of emerges through multiple of the respondents that you talk to. Yeah, uh, shout out to Marcus Hunter, who some of the early work that I was doing in sociology on on race and sexuality, I drew off some of his work. Uh, and I got to like shout out other folks like Lionel Cantu, late Lionel Cantu, Mignon Moore, Hector Carrillo. Their work has been foundational to just thinking that this project was possible. And of course, their work has influenced this too. But to your, to your question, yeah, I think that framework of the up-down identities or the Filipino then gay mm -hmm. that I borrow from Marcus is, I think the reason that became so prominent, particularly in the passage that you read about the Filipino student organization, Barcada, that's in a Cal State University campus. What's interesting is that when I interviewed folks of different generations, so this was, you know, what do we call them? Geriatric millennials, folks... <laughs> <laughs> like myself. Yes, I think that's what we call it. Yep. <laughs> I think we're geriatric millennials, the three of us. But uh, yeah. old ass millennials. I mean, or I'm I might actually be very young Gen X, but I refuse <laughs> that label. <laughs> yeah, but us geriatric millennials, uh, the folks that I interviewed that went to college uh, during the same time, perhaps we went to college. 
you really noticed that there was this divide between their gay lives and their Filipino lives on campus. And it really felt like in, in the in the Filipino student org space, they had to be Filipino first and all identities came second. Mm-hmm. And then when they, you know, frolicked off to West Hollywood or, or some club in Orange County or Pomona, then it was the reverse. They're, they're gay, then Filipino, right? And mm-hmm. I started to notice when I interviewed folks that were born in the GASP 1990s, <laughs> their entree into these student of color organizations was very different because by then it was okay to be both gay and Filipino or for the the Latino orgs, it was okay to be both Mexican and gay. Those weren't uh, somehow being gay didn't cancel your status or membership in those student of color organizations in the same way that it might have for folks that were going to college around the late 90s, early 2000s. It's so wild how this, how effectively this book traces, I'm not going to be able to find the correct passage, but like there's a passage about how gay marriage went from like this distant dream to like this foregone conclusion in the space of a couple of years. And like our generation witnessed that in a way that people born post-1990 just like aren't going to feel in the same way. And there was a manner in which I thought this book served to chronicle that transition, you know, and sort of who was caught in in the crossfire of it, for lack of a better word. Anyway, that's not a question. That's just something that I really liked about the particular historicity of this book, to use like a super academic word. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think uh, so that line, I quote, Carmen Maria Machado's yes. groundbreaking, I don't even know what to call it. It's, it, it, it's just a genre breaking book in the dream house. And when I read that line, I I remember circling it and be like, I have to put this in the book. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm glad that that line is there because you're right. One of the hardest things about writing this book was that I was trying to write about the, you know, the intersection of race and sexuality, but the way that played out in society was changing by the Mm -hmm. minute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, let me give you a little bit of my trajectory into doing this kind of research. I did, a really small ethnographic project in the mid to late 2000s on queer Latino clubs and friendship circles. At that time, there was, I mean, smartphones were new. There was no grinder. Right. People had to get on a laptop or a desktop and find gay people mm-hmm. through the internet that way. Or they had to actually trek over to the watering holes, the gay clubs, to meet folks. And then... As you know, over the course of the next 10 years, you have all sorts of things happen from not just like the grinder geolocation app thing, but also you have um, same-sex marriage becoming legal <laughs> in, in many, many states and then, of course, becoming federal law. But then you also have things like the pulse shooting happen and the election of what's-his-name in 2016. Can't remember. <laughs> Mine's blank. <laughs> that represent the backsliding. And then, of course, I think to the credit of of the most minoritized members of the LGBTQ collective, a resurgence, just more attention on trans people, trans people of color. And that was much more prominent attention to non-binary folks was much more prominent in the latter half of the writing of this book. So I just felt like, oh, shit, I'm going to fuck up somewhere. But I had to just remind myself that, you know, I'm just one dude writing one book that's going to maybe be like around 200 pages. I can't cover every I can't cover everyone. I have to absolve myself the responsibility that like I am going to write a book that covers everyone's experience. Mm. But I did definitely feel that pressure for the decade or like the decade that I spent like doing the research and writing the book. So one thing that I thought this book also does beautifully and in the same way where I can tell that in some way you were trying to you know, you you had to fit way too much into a book, but you just kind of made your path through it and assumed that you were getting the stories you needed was the question of L.A., right? In the in the Latinas of Asia, L.A. was sort of in the background. There, there were a lot of the people you interviewed clearly were from there. This time, L.A. is front and center. And yet you kind of tell us, I think, in chapter one that basically be very careful with that label. Like this, it's a it's a big ass place and it really depends where you're going, uh, the geography is super interesting. You talk about how, like, you know, choices are dictated by, you know, like I'm going to quote this by by race, by class, and a willingness or lack thereof to sit in traffic. The fact that this place just contains all these these microcosms, and I thought that was just like 
It was lovely to get this kind of sense of place. Can you talk a little bit about why it was important to you to have LA in the title, but then to kind of, like, I have a suspicion as to why you did this, but maybe make it explicit for listeners, why you then sort of felt that you had to say at the beginning, like, be very careful. I'm not talking just about West Hollywood here or something like that. You know, I have a couple answers to that <laughs> that are that all kind of play into why I wanted to have LA in the title. I, I I'm a ride or die Angelino. <laughs> and I think when you meet those ride or die Angelinos, you just you kind of know you can you can tell. And so for me, I wanted to write a book that was very, very much anchored in L.A. And I, I kind of really do believe that whole it's better to what's that phrase that writers use? Like you can get at the universal by talking about the specific or something. Yes. Uh, you know what I'm yes. saying? Yes. Of course. Yeah. And I remember for my first book, it's very much about L.A. And I was encouraged to not signal in any way that it was like an L.A. book because, you know, maybe the New Yorkers won't want to read it or other people. Right. And while I understood the logic, I in my gut, I was like, well, like, whatever. I I don't agree, but I'll do what you say because it's my first book. But for the second book, which I had a little bit more, I think, confidence to, to push. Mm-hmm. I really wanted it to be L.A. because I didn't want what happened to happen for my first book, which was for my first book, generally positive comments. But then you had folks from like Texas or Arkansas or or Seattle or the Bay that says, oh, this doesn't relate to my experience. Mm. And so and I get why they felt that way. But with this book, it's like, OK, like. I'm just going to really put in the title. I don't, of course, everyone loves a rhyme. So Brown and Gay in L.A. was, uh, I think it's catchy. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. And I think what's different, my publisher for this one was New York University Press. And I think if anyone can understand the importance of censoring their own city, New Yorkers can. So the editor was totally fine with it. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, I've not shut up about this city for 30 years. Why don't you tell me about yours? I also love the fact, I mean, there's so much sort of methodologically rich tweaks that come with that, though, right? Like on the one hand, there's that, I think it's a Jack Halberstam term, right? Metronormativity that we tend to tell sort of queer history preferentially through urban spaces, right? Mm-hmm. West Hollywood, the Castro, the Greenwich Village, et cetera, et cetera, which also, of course, like tend to make the story very, very white. And, you know, the fact that suburban queerness is a different thing, its own particular thing, as you say, has probably changed far more dramatically than, let's say, the Castro has changed due to Grinder in the case of LGBTQ populations. What other city would give you this kind of richness, this fact that the suburbs do not equal sort of middle class, the fact that downtown does not necessarily mean poverty, that like, you know, all these things that like these lematic things that sort of Americans often grow up with as shorthand. In LA, they're all kind of turn on their heads. Like it could be, it could not be. Um, you got to look more carefully than that, you know? It's interesting you say that because those takeaway points, I kind of, I almost didn't realize that I was doing that because <laughs> that's just LA. That's just the norm. That, you know, LA is my home and reference point. And so I forget that there's other parts of the country where you say suburban, it, it automatically triggers thoughts of like Pleasantville or, or weeds or the, you know, little boxes yeah. mm-hmm. on the tiki. What is that song? Like little boxes on, on the, the hillside. hillside. So, which was written about Daily City. City. That song was written about yeah. Daily City, interestingly enough. No yes. way. Yeah. Yep. I'll be yep. else. Yeah. So, you know, I do think one, I wanted to, I mean, I don't know if I said it explicitly, but LA is a place where, including for gay people, gay young men of color, where race and gender and sexuality basically organize your life and the way that yeah. you meander around the city. So just take West Hollywood, for example. It's not like it's not like queer men of color, especially ones that are new to gay life, were going there at any time of the day. There had to be some venue or, or specialty night that functioned as like the the nucleus. So whether it's like Mm. Asian-American night at Rage or Latin night at uh, Mickey's or something. So those were events that spawned community, that spawned a particular type of like queer POC cultural capital. And I wanted to really shine a light on how these places that folks would might just dismiss as like, oh, it's just a club or it's just a, a bar actually carry you know, significant meanings for folks that don't don't get to experience nightlife or even like life 
in all arenas of their lives. I'm so sorry. This is like so anecdotal, but you were just reminding me of the, I I lived in West Hollywood in like a summer sublet in 2012 while I was in LA shooting a movie and it had a little balcony and I was smoking then. And I would remember like just, (laughs) you know, in the mornings before work, I'd be like out on this balcony having a smoke and the totality of like the passing scenery was like gay men walking their dogs. (laughs) Like it was just, that was all I saw. It was right on um, San Vicente. Anyway, that is not sociological research. It's just a memory I was having as I was reading your book. It um. is. I think that I think in some ways what you were doing is totally sociology. And what I found with a lot of these young men is, you know, not all of them studied sociology, but in a lot of ways they were theorists, right? They were they, they theorized sure. about yeah. the ways their little worlds were organized, you know, how masculinity and femininity sort of dictated your status and, and who you became friends with or more prominently who you dated who you thought was hot (laughs) oh my gosh i'm gonna go full la nerd here and sort of say that there's this point i think eve babbitts makes where she sort of says something similar to what you just said she makes the point that because you have to drive everywhere because it's so far flung everything becomes intentional and you can have to kind of reflect on it and i think that's what you're saying by saying every los angelino has to be kind of a sociologist because like you have 45 minutes before you get there to think about why you're actually going there. And like, I mean, Babbitt's point is a little overstated, but she's saying there's nothing organic about this. So therefore you have to kind of make explicit as to why it's happening. And and I feel like you know queer people have always done that too, because like queer people have to kind of be self-conscious about gathering. You can't just sort of be at the local Starbucks or whatever, right? In some way, you're forced into a baby sociologist position almost almost from the word go. Oh, no doubt. And, you know, my biggest complaint about LA is that happenstance is not a thing, <laughs> unlike in New York or right. in yes. Chicago or San Francisco. I mean, maybe in downtown LA nowadays, but for, for most Angelinos, it's <laughs> intentionality, it being a decision, the calculus. Adrian, I'm realizing how much there's a parallel between typical Angelino life of having to like do the calculus in your head about whether or not you're going to see someone or hang out with someone. And as you mentioned, like what it means to be queer and having to do the calculus of like safety yeah. and, uh, you know, like how are you going to get somewhere, who are you going to be with, et cetera. But yeah, it's, there is a total, in some ways, maybe <laughs> being queer and POC and an Angelino, it all like compounds to the yeah. point where you're like a super, super theorist by the time you're a young adult. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like one of the threads you two are both drawing here is hypervigilance, right? Which is like a necessary trauma response to like all sorts of microaggressions and other modes of like your environment conveying to you that you may or may not be safe there. And if we're talking about trauma responses that, like, I believe transcend just the Southern California area, I cannot miss this opportunity to talk about academic covering with the two of you. I would love to quote, I would love to begin by quoting the line, gay people love leadership positions. (laughs) (laughs) I underlined that too. (laughs) Oh, oh, I know, Adrian. I mean, I knew that without you even telling me that. But like, (sighs) so, so like. Let me say first, this has been my experience, like this is resonant (laughs) with my experience that gay people love leadership positions. But like, what is academic covering, Dr. Ocampo, and how does it enter the conversation here? Yeah, I love that that line resonates so much because that line came from a, at the time, an 18 year old college freshman that was just (laughs) speaking the truth, (laughs) speaking the truth. Talk about a read, right? But uh, truly, the academic covering concepts came up, you know, I read Kenji Yoshino's Kenji Yoshino. Yes. I read his memoir on covering and I thought, wow, this is this is really resonating. And then, of course, he he quotes Irving Goffman, who has that that line I quote from his book Stigma, which was published in like the 1960s about how with minoritized or marginalized folks, they they already know that they're marginalized or minoritized or they're at risk. And so they're not necessarily trying to pass, right? It's a little bit different from passing, right? It's because for a lot of folks, passing as straight, just they're smart enough to know that mm-hmm. folks wouldn't buy it because of the way we think about gender and sexuality being one and the same, uh, or at least most people do. And so what do I do? And so let me just sort of front load with some other aspect of my identity that's going to yes. distract folks from the fact that I'm a feminine or potentially seen as queer. Mm-hmm. And 
that came up a lot with both Filipinos and Mexican-Americans and, and other Latinos that I interviewed. And I caught remnants of it, too, when I read about there's that book by E. Patrick Johnson, Sweet Tea, which is about black men in the South. And, and he has this one line that kind of is about the same phenomenon of like black gay men just being phenomenal, let's say, like art or creativity. And then in memoirs, a lot of memoirs, I noticed that people would talk about how being gay meant they had to like overcompensate by being good in school. And that also was like a, a strategy, you know, like worst case scenario, if your parents kick you out, you have your college degree slash middle class profession that can function as a backup, not just in terms of like having a place to live, but also who you can fall back on, but also like for your own sense of self, like, okay, like maybe everyone hates me for being gay, but at least I'm fucking smart as hell. So <laughs> it's funny because I thought the academic covering thing was the most like blatantly obvious, duh, like boring sociological finding ever. But the more that chapter and that concept gets out in the world, I'm like pretty flabbergasted that a lot of um, <laughs> particularly straight men or heterosexual folks are just like, oh, my God, what is this? That's so interesting. And I'm just like so surprised and flabbergasted, but also kind of like it reveals to me how much folks who are not queer, it reveals to me how much they don't know the amount of labor <laughs> that goes into just existing I didn't realize how bad it was until I got folks reacting to that chapter in a way where they were just like blown away. Ooh, that is so wow. interesting. That is so interesting on so many levels. First, that like it felt so obvious to you, right? Like I feel like this is an axiom I'm always trying to convey to students is like writing is the practice of making what is obvious to you obvious to everybody else. That is exactly what you did here. Mm -hmm. And it's also so interesting to me that you're getting straight reactions that are like shocked because my reaction to this, to this like chapter was like, this describes every queer person I've ever known, including myself and everybody in this conversation. <laughs> like... Oh my God. Yes. So, I mean, Anthony, Laura, can I, can I, Oh my God, please go ahead. So, so like we need to print out this chapter and bring it out like at parties and have people read it and if they react strongly and like if they're like what is this you'll know for real for real they're straight and then they're like oh my god this is me yeah they'll be like oh my god girl you're gay too like it could be a litmus test <laughs> it's a foolproof barometer yes no this is it you've you invented gaydar you foolproofed it no i mean i just have to read another passage well two things one it is not at all surprising to me that a professional who studies behavior would be excellent at verb choice and you are excellent at verb choice my favorite verb in the academic covering section is front loading like i think that's the perfect verb for what's going on here because overcompensating adds a judgmental veneer right but front loading just just qualifies like this is what i'm presenting first this is what i'm making most obvious about me in like an effort to distract you from other things but the sentence that, like, I had to, like, lay down and, like, cover my head with pillows and blankets because I felt so called out. Academic covering, page 42 is where I'm reading. Academic covering includes a variety of strategies, presenting oneself as an academic overachiever, enrolling in as many honors and AP courses as possible, staying in the good graces of teachers and school officials, and participating in extracurricular activities associated with high achievers, e.g. student government debate team orchestra yearbook. I was like, why are you quoting my college applications in this book that you wrote? <laughs> it was so recognizable. And to me, that comes back to what you were saying before about like the universal resides in the specific, you know, like I'm queer, but I'm also like a white girl from Minnesota. And mm -hmm. this was deeply specific to me in its universality. So like, again, no question, just freaking out. <laughs> I just loved it. No, I love that because I think in some ways... I love that I got to write this book and have queer Latinx or queer Filipino young men be the reference point. Because I think I get a lot of questions whenever I, I do interviews or events where folks will ask me, like, how is this different from white gay people? <laughs> and I'm like, why do white gay people get to be like the ones from yardstick. whom you, the yardstick? That's the that was like going to be all jar, like long winded. The ones from whom you re whatever reference. But I, I was like, why can't yeah these folks be the yardstick to whom folks can relate? And so it's 
even though what it looks like on the surface is the same, you relate to a story yeah. or, you know, it's vice versa. They relate to your story. The fact that these young men of color that grew up in a very different sociopolitical economic context than you see in the Midwest, the fact that you find something that connects you just just really drills home the point that like you can tell stories of marginalized folks in a way that can get everyone to to vibe with absolutely and i think that publishing academia hollywood they all tell us the opposite that like it's it's white stories that are the most universal but this proves intersectionality's point which the whole book is a project of doing is like if you center marginality you're gonna include everybody you know like this is that yeah totally and i can't understate how influential black feminist thought was to the thinking and the writing of this book so i was as as all writers do you have your your books that are by your side as you write. So I had books like um, mm-hmm. Thick. Um, I had uh, How We Get Free by Kianga Yamada Taylor. Of course, uh, Audre Lorde, Patricia Hill Collins, Kimberly Crenshaw. These are the books that really, I think, were my companions in writing this. Um, mm-hmm. Imani Perry, mm-hmm. I'll throw her in there as well. But I didn't realize how much having those as my companion texts would Mm -hmm. transform the way the book was written. Because I think Mm. if I was embedded within sociology, and I was very much embedded in sociology when I started the book, I think the book would have looked very different if who I was in convo with or who shaped my thinking was mainly like immigration scholars or like race ethnicity Mm -hmm. scholars. I found myself publishing, you know, early parts of the findings in articles like as early as the you know 2013 or, or 2012 and it's interesting because when i wrote these pieces for academic journals you have to situate it in a literature and the obvious thing for me was to situate it within like immigration literature or or mm-hmm. well pretty much immigration literature and i remember how unsatisfying it was to have my findings be in conversation with the immigration literature because i always felt like it was the intersectionality scholars that were the ones who really like got me to do the heavy lifting at every process of, of developing this project. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? That like this book can kind of blaze the intersectional trail that it does. But as you say, like you are also publishing some of these results in peer-reviewed journals, where indeed, mm-hmm. like you kind of have to lop even full limbs off this whole project in order to make it kind of conform to just the way questions are traditionally asked in these fields and the kind of literature you're reacting to, how that came up and how that's situated. Did some of the scholarly work around this already come out or did you sort of hold it back until now just so that the real living, breathing version of this is sort of out there in the world and people can refer to that if they don't quite get quite the same amount of verve from a scholarly article or how did you decide to figure that one out oh good question i think my answer is very unsexy (laughs) so i'm glad you asked it i think when i you know i got my first job as a professor at cal poly pomona and i was very happy because i was in la and you know it was a it's so different to be at a university where teaching matters (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> caring about students matters. Uh, yeah. No shade to the R1s, but let's be real. Like <laughs> oh, when you're getting your graduate degree, like you try to teach as little as possible. You try to like, they tell you literally, like don't dive too much into teaching and mentoring. It'll af- negatively affect your career. So anyway, I was at an institution in the early 2010s that was the opposite. Like students mattered, teaching mattered the most, actually more than research. But uh, as I started to publish, not just this, but other books, as you know, like the way the academic job market works, folks try to like lure you to apply. And so I, my desire to write academic articles was only in order to like apply for new jobs. So like, right. personally, you can put me on the record as saying like, I never wanted to write journal articles. I don't really like writing journal articles. I think I can do them decently, but I just find it really... <laughs> like unsatisfying oh. creatively, personally. And that said, I, I read a lot of journal articles that influence my work. But for me, in terms of like, what do I want to create? That's not my mm. um, cultural object of choice. I've always right. been obsessed with like essays and books. But early in your career, you're just told you have to write articles. So yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was a very like 
um, my decision about writing articles is very much constrained by like what I thought my career trajectory would be. Mm. But all of that kind of flipped in 2016 when the Pulse shooting happened. I that that I remember um the morning of the Pulse shooting was June 12th, 2016. I went to bed and I was going to wake up early because on June 12, 2016, I was set to give a, a graduation speech. You know, one of these inspiring, you know, TED talky speeches to UCLA, the Filipino graduation at UCLA. So I had all my inspirational remarks prepared. And then I wake up and you see yeah. what you saw, like 49 dead, mostly queer folks of color, a mass shooting. And... <laughs> It just, uh, <laughs> I was just unraveled. Like there was just no, I had no compass. Like I didn't know what direction was, I didn't even know what to do. And the reason I felt that way is because I knew how euphoric and and hard fought it was for a queer person of color to finally find a space where for at least two to four hours out of the week, they get to be their full selves unapologetically, which you can't do. You can't do in the neighborhood. You can't do in your schools. You can't even do in your own family, which is supposed to be like all the places where you're supposed to feel safe. You feel totally unsafe. And so just the juxtaposition of these folks being in a space where finally they got to actualize the the beauty and the richness of who they are because it's a queer POC space. And then to have it so like tragically their lives so tragically end in the way that it did. It just unraveled me. And so I think that even though I live in the West Coast and Orlando's 3,000 miles away, I'm not exaggerating when I say that that event completely transformed me as a writer. Because I just felt like if I write stuff about queer folks or people of color and there's no emotion or it doesn't feel urgent and it feels sterile, mm. that seems like I'm not honoring the humanity of folks if you can read about their lives and be left unmoved or neutral in any sort of way and so yeah after that the pulse shooting i actually <laughs> i quit writing the book because i think the first version of this book was very much like how does sexuality contribute to immigration studies and i just thought that like everything i wrote was fucking garbage at that point and so i i completely quit writing the book and it really wasn't until Two years later, really, when I took a writing class with Kiese Lehman, <laughs> newly minted MacArthur yeah. genius. As of yes, I was going to say. Well, <laughs> for the listeners, that happened today. So for you, that's in the past. For us, this is still very... Or was it... Yeah, it was announced today, right? Or yesterday? I, I think I forget, yeah. but it's sometime in early October. No, yeah. <laughs> so sorry to be a... Oh, I'm not spoiling it for you because all of you are in the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're in the future. But yeah, I took a writing class with him and I I just thought, you know, what? I'm going to go in with no expectations, no goals. And I'm just going to see what happens if I just decide to be present in that creative space. And I'm going to let the instead of trying to, as we academics do, try to be in the driver's seat all the time. I'm going to actually just ride the wave. Mm. And that's actually the catalyst of what started the real writing of this book is I found myself in a rabbit hole mm. of writers and thinkers that were very, very far away from sociology. It really influenced me a lot in how the, the writing unfolded. Actually, like, you know, when you have your, when you write a book, you should always have like a writing group. There was no one in my writing group that was a sociologist. I had one group that was an Asian American, Taiwanese American journalist and writer, an Osage fiction, nonfiction writer, and, and a black woman who had a history PhD and a journalist and also an essayist. That was my writing group. Mm -hmm. And then I had another group of like all Asian American women social scientists who I trusted to not steer me in like weird directions back to the academy, you know, academies. So I really do think that that choice and the choice to like take creative writing classes instead of present this at conferences, I think you're seeing what happens when you completely change your social network and continue to write a book. It can totally transform what mm. the final product looks like.
And I should say that the whole thing is a triumph of research and of concepts, but it is also just a real triumph of organization. I think it's like for an academic book, like it's extremely well written mm -hmm. for a book that came out with NYU University Press. It is also just like extremely expertly organized, right down to the fact that the pulse shooting shows up early and sort of very gently makes the point that the question that the pulse shooting raised, I think, for a lot of people was, like, I think everyone acknowledged that the victims had been queer people of color and that they had been targeted as that. But then what do you do with that, right? Like, it's it, all the narratives that then were brought to bear, people were painfully aware of the fact that they were, as you were saying earlier, centered on whiteness in some unspoken way. And the way the book very gently sort of says, like, let's let's reverse that right now, right? You're going to find some stuff here relatable and other things maybe not. But that's not the point. The point is to center the kind of world that was attacked that day and then explore the entire universe from that. That to me is, it's such an essayistic kind of way, even though you're doing it in a highly scholarly way, right? To sort of see, let's say like, look, this is going to be my provisional starting point. Mm -hmm. Everything else will flow from this. You're just going to have to be okay with it, you know? <laughs> uh, and I, I really like that. And I really, really like that. And I think that it takes enormous courage. And I'd, I don't know. I mean, if you ever felt comfortable sharing the original book, unless you kind of destroyed it, like what you had <laughs> a long time ago, it'd be super interesting to, for students to see or for other writers to see just how you find the courage to just kind of take ideas and recenter them in the way that ethically and politically and in the interest of truth, you know, they need to be need to be centered. You're right. I appreciate you seeing this. And this is why I'm always like, I was like, Laura, Adrian, can I come on your show? Because I know you're going to ask me questions that no one else will ask or will we'll have a conversation that literally no one will be able to have. So thank you so much. But to your point, I uh, <laughs> I would love to forward you like some of the original mm -hmm. version and have you do a side by side because I think you'll see how different it really is. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I just want to underscore that between writing in that traditional academic way and the way the book got written now, there's a lot of hideous attempts at trying to write nonfiction hideously. <laughs> I thought what I was writing was dope. And then I look at it now. I'm like, oh, my God, thank God no one published this. And I think like the reason I felt like I'm not ashamed to say that is because I remember doing an interview with I interviewed a Viet Thanh Nguyen who wrote The Sympathizer. <laughs> and, you know, I remember reading his first book and then reading The Sympathizer and his other essays. And I thought, how the fuck did he get from Race and Resistance published Oxford Press to what he wrote now? Yeah. And I asked him that and he said, you know, it was 17 years of writing a lot of really terrible stuff. And so I thought, oh, <laughs> you just got to write the terrible stuff to arrive here. But I appreciate the 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 framing of like, oh, I took a courageous route to write this. But in a lot of ways, I think serendipity is also part of it. I, I think like, mm, you know, I went on the academic job market at a time when like I was gunning for the R1 and I didn't get it. And I ended up at a teaching school, which meant that mm -hmm. I'm at a place where I wasn't beholden to say like, sociological standards in the same way as a UC or a Stanford. Right. I also have a, a classroom where 99.9% .9 of my students are students of color, children of immigrants. And so the, that's who I was in convo with constantly. And then the other part about it is where I live. I live in LA. My social circle is mostly POC. And so to, to borrow the words of Tressie McMillan Cottom, she tweeted this thing once where it was about Cardi B and she was like, white people don't run around in Cardi's imagination. And I thought Cardi's able to be Cardi because white folks don't run in her imagination. And so right. I would say throughout the writing of this book, white folks weren't in my imagination whatsoever. The discipline wasn't in my, wasn't within reach in any sense. And that's like being anchored yeah. in that way, I think really reshapes how you write. I know this to be a fact because there were moments when I was writing this book where I was recruited for jobs at R1s and I noticed that my ability to be balls to the wall, creative nonfiction writer, I noticed I pulled back when 
I was up for those jobs, like the falls that I was up for a job at, you know, certain R1 institutions, I noticed that my writing would get more, mm. I self-policed myself in ways that I didn't yeah. when I wasn't trying to apply for a job. Oh, that's rich. Oh, is that interesting? I have so many thoughts. I mean, the one thing I have to say is like, I am extremely here for an extremely readable academic text that is less than 200 pages. Adrian kind of obliquely referenced this. And I just think it's such an, a benchmark we should all aspire to. <laughs> it is really hard to condense this much information in like a logical and legible way in less than 200 pages. And you do this. I also, I was, when you guys were talking about pulse, there's something that I was working out that I'm still working out that I want to work out with you, which is I remember around the time of that massacre, part of the discourse was gay people being like, you all don't understand. This was our church. Like they attacked our church and straight people being like, how could you possibly equate a club with my place of worship? <laughs> and Anthony, I think that this book stands in that gap in such a beautiful and like sociologically detailed way. Because like what I come up with after reading this is like, of course, the club is our church. What do you do in church? You sing, you dance, you're present, you're surrounded by people in fellowship, and you are all worshiping the same divine force. That's what gay clubs are, right? <laughs> and like, there was something about like the methodology mm -hmm. of your sociological rigor being brought to bear on that, that helped me understand better why that attack was so devastating, you know? So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, Pulse is obviously a part of this, but beyond just Pulse, sort of what your research revealed about like what the gay club is within everything we're talking about. Oh yeah, the gay club is is everything. It's, it's, yeah. it's a school because where else do gay men learn about sex yeah. and sexual health and the amazing gay people that came before them through AIDS activism or organizing people to vote or to educate their communities about homophobia, it hurts LGBTQ members. It, I, you learn a lot of shit yeah. when you go to the gay club that you should be able to learn in school. Yes. <laughs> or the doctor. Yes. You know, whenever young gay men are trying to figure out what to do when it comes to like sexual health, like they're not asking their doctors who are going right. to give them a look of like you. They're asking their homie at the club. And I think that that's in that sense, it's a it's a health center. It's a school. When you say, you know, what, what's nice about church is you feel like you're part of something much larger than yourself. And I think that at the gay club, you feel that you're part of something much larger than yourself in the little moment of like dancing with other folks like you. Yes. But I think over time you realize yeah, you realize that these are like historic places where exactly. earlier generations of gay people like carved out opportunities of agency that they may not have had so that you can have. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And of course, yeah. And of course, to be honest, besides it being an educational space, it's also, you know, the middle school or high school dance that you never got to go to. And yeah, ooh, yeah. First kiss, first holding hands, first heartbreak. I I have no problem saying that, like, I remember the feeling of, like, finding the first person that I truly was smitten with at a gay club and just feeling like I was, like, in a rom-com in ways that I never really felt. That, I'm so gay, right? But, like, I felt like so rom-com. <laughs> but like, uh, I felt that. And I also remember, like, being, like, a 28-year-old man or 29-year-old man, like, bawling at a dance club at a gay Latino club called Circus when I saw my x with another guy but like again those are the kind of messy life memories that i never knew i was able to have because i was so busy and like a lot of these young men so busy curating some version of myself that would be mm -hmm. um, the world would be okay with mm -hmm. okay is an interesting word there because i was just thinking about another connection that this book helped me understand the book lands with a reference to this conversation between Brian Washington and Ocean Vong about the idea of radical okayness, which is neither triumph nor tragedy, right? Like it's neither the like trauma porn college admissions essay, nor is it like a perfect rainbow utopia. It's just being allowed to exist. And as you were talking, I was like, 
that is what the gay club is. It's, it is also a site of radical okayness just by virtue of being a space where people are allowed to be freely themselves. Like that seems like a really important connection to me. Yeah. I, I liked that. I was able to end the book there because it's a very different place than when I was when I first started writing the book. When I first started writing the book... I was going to (laughs) say... I was not in that place. Sure. (laughs) When I first started thinking about the book in the early 2010s, my motivation was actually, you know, same sex was being legalized. There was more and more representation of gay people on TV and media and whatever. And I felt like people were like, oh... We have same-sex marriage, therefore, like, everything's all hunky-dory. In the same way that folks said it about, like, Obama selection, now we're post-racial. I felt like... Post-racial. Oh, that was special. Right. That was was a mood, right? Uh, (laughs) Uh And I felt like people were doing a similar thing where the fact that gay people were out in public, all of a sudden, for a lot of straight folks, it felt, like, unnewsworthy or like, oh, yeah, great, you know? Everyone's all, like kumbaya now and it's like wait a second like i just lived the first 20 years of my life like feeling completely fucked up you can't tell me that all of a sudden because of this you know same-sex marriage is legal in california or on the federal level like it just erases all that shit that happened so i felt like i wanted to chronicle all the everyday acts of resistance and labor that that these young men were doing i wanted to honor that labor i think i I write something like that Mm. yeah because i felt like it was being erased by straight folks and then over time i was like oh shit like in wanting to honor that labor this is a big reason why i kind of feel like i'm defecting from sociology i felt like i was just focusing on all the tragedy like sociology as a discipline is is, Mm -hmm. it's not concerned with like right laughter and happiness and kikiing and reading each other for filth like those are central parts of queer poc life that sociology there's no like the current survey methods or ethnography there's no way to like shine a light on that and so i started to read a lot of queer folks of color that wrote either fiction or nonfiction folks like Brian Washington, Ocean Vong. And I just loved, and Brian Washington in particular, I just love that like everything he writes about is about the mundane aspects of being queer and black or queer and, you know, Asian American. You know, there's just a lot of moments where we're just, you know, like his book Memorial. It's like, here's two kind of like slacker dudes, like just doing their thing and kind of in a relationship, but kind of not. Uh, and I, I felt like that's the kind of place I wanted to end at. It's like not everything has to fit this trope of like tragedy and triumph. Because if you literally count the hours of the day of like a typical queer life, every moment isn't about tragedy and triumph. There's a lot of stuff in between that happens that I think sociology can't capture. And I think fiction and nonfiction do a better job of. And it does also render a much greater service to the question of immigration or immigrant status when it comes to sexuality, right? I mean, I guess in the U.S. it's maybe not quite as pronounced as, let's say, in Europe. But this idea that, like, as countries like the U.S. or, like, Western European countries have sort of grudgingly granted some civil rights to gay people, it's become this kind of cudgel in w- with which to kind of beat up on immigrant communities. Like, well, they they must automatically be less accepting. It must be more traumatic to be gay in an immigrant family, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think the argument that your book implicitly offers is it's more complicated in some ways for some people. And it's good to attend to that. But you don't want to end up with, oh, you're an immigrant. Can I have your trauma porn story, please? Right. Like, did your mom kick you out or whatever? Right. Like, and I think it's important to have that there, too. And I think the radical okayness kind of gets at that, too, that like there's a certain version of this that becomes kind of implicitly anti-immigrant, too, or like makes the, the immigrant kind of a source of this kind of melodramatic energy right like um right like living out living out you know these these horrible traumas for the benefit of like an audience that isn't affected by them and i think that that's it makes a lot of sense to me that you'd say like any methodology that that will accentuate that aspect of my storytelling isn't really doing justice as you say to these people for whom that's maybe one or two minutes out of every 24 hours and they're unpleasant minutes for sure, but they're two minutes and like, you know, and there's a lot of joy. There's a lot more of everything else Mm -hmm. than there is of this. Right. 
Yeah. Can I say something about that, Adrian? Please, yes. <laughs> so I think this is where the social location of the researcher and writer matters a lot. Yeah. Because back when I was like right after Pulse and I was in my like healing process, one of the things I wanted to do was try to like pivot to to writing for like whatever, BuzzFeed or, you know, these kind of outlets, personal essays. And one of the first things I wrote got published. Well, I don't know if you would call it got published because the Huff Post doesn't pay money. But like some, the, <laughs> <laughs> someone hit post. Someone was like, yeah. Someone's like, yeah. You can post it on the Huff Post, and we'll call it an article. <laughs> but anyway, um, I wrote this piece in early in my writer write like essay career, and it's called "The Long Journey to Ordinary," and it's mostly personal essay, but it, it really talks about how. When I was first starting to date Joe, who's my first kind of like significant partner that my family met, the parts that stood out to me the most wasn't some big dramatic conversation of like, mom, here's my boyfriend. And then like some like fall, like weird collision, right? That you might see in a movie. What really stood out to me was, okay, me and Joe are eating Filipino breakfast on a Sunday morning after we go party with friends and it's like my mom talking to him about how to fry an egg or my dad who's like a lot of folks is not very tech savvy is like asking Joe to burn a CD for him or I think the one I like telling is when you know I think maybe one of the first holidays that I was dating Joe my mom went outlet shopping and she bought like sweaters or beanies and she bought both of us one but like in different colors and so (laughs) Those were very ordinary moments that were extraordinary to me and actually more extraordinary than, say, like my mom joining P flag <laughs> or, 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 or doing some like let's just call it like some some like white version of how a parent accepts their their gay kid. Right. right. I wanted to take inventory of those moments because like I don't think other folks would notice it, but I think queer people would notice it. Or, you know, the other example I talk about is when you get invited to a wedding, the most heteronormative of institutions, and you get an invitation that says Mr. Mister Joe Cipriano and Mr. Anthony O'Connor. Like, that shit blew my mind when I got my first wedding invitation that had me and my partner's name. Yeah, And by then, I was like in my 30s, and I'm sure people have gotten a bazillion wedding invitations and didn't think twice. But for me... That was like a big deal. The book is such a beautiful testament to the big deal nature of small moments, right? As you were talking to all of these interviewees, I found it so moving how many of them, you know, some of the stories were like horrible and traumatic and involved like being horribly rejected by people really close to them. And that is like an important thing to detail. And I also noticed so many of these folks remembered a tiny moment of like a teacher showing an interest in them or a white person who seemed genuinely engaged Mm -hmm. in learning more or whatever. And I just I found that deeply inspiring in a way, especially because you were talking to these respondents about in a lot of times events that had happened many years ago, like this was stuff that had stayed with them. And I just thought that was such like a beautiful testament to how much small interventions and small kindnesses can really matter in the long run. And I like that the time in which I did the interviews was a period when every little act didn't have to be documented on Instagram or Facebook. Mm. Cause now I feel like there's almost like too much Mm -hmm. curation of the little acts. Like you can't gauge whether this is someone that's like manufacturing (laughs) an identity which i'm very guilty of on twitter don't like let's be real but like we all are (laughs) but also like i don't think the young the young men i interviewed at the time i interviewed them they weren't compelled to document every single moment on instagram or twitter or tumblr or whatever you know their lives were anchored in their social interactions on the ground and who knows what kind of study would have emerged if i even conducted this the research for this book like 2016 to 2020 it would be totally different yeah i think so Mm. you know i think you may have captured history unfolding you know just by sticking with this specific location and with these specific folks i think that you know in some way that's all we can do right look look at the little slice that we've chosen to study and hope that really big questions move through it and i think in brown and in la you definitely 
you know, it doesn't always work out that way, but it did in this case. And it really, to me, captured so much about the kinds of methodological questions we're asking ourselves in the various disciplines that you touch on, the political questions we're asking ourselves, the questions we're asking ourselves within the LGBT community. So I just think it was uh, well chosen and you present it and analyze it just beautifully. Thanks. I didn't expect it to have that time capsule feeling. But again, I think that's where like, who you're around influences you. And, and during the writing of this book, I, I actually listened to that podcast, Making Gay History, Yeah, a lot of it. And, you know, they interview people like Sylvia Rivera, or I think they interview the partner of Bayard Rustin or Barbara Smith. And they, these are old ass interviews mm. that were conducted on like cassette tape in the 70s and 80s. And I was like, why did I not have this when I was, you know, first realizing I was gay? Right. I didn't care that the interviews happened in a different historical yeah. time. There was something that I felt like I took from them. So I hope that this book stands the test of time, even though it is about a particular time period. Well, I feel aware that Angela Lansbury died yesterday and the gay community is already in a period of deep grief. Yes. So I feel it would be homophobic to keep you any longer, Anthony. Um <laughs> <laughs> This is such a pl I can't wait to buy this book for all of the same people I bought your first book for and like probably like another 20 students on top of that. It's so necessary and I'm so excited to share it. Same here. Same here. And thanks so much. I am a fan of the pod ever since I came across the roster of interviewees you have. I'm like, oh, this whoever curated this list of people, I need to be their friend because <laughs> those are the kinds of like thinker slash writer folks that I'm trying to emulate. So thank you. The pod felt exactly the same way about you. <laughs> the Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. 